The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Recently, we've been focusing on the various aspects and crossovers of captive wildlife and its effect and consequences on wildlife in the larger free-ranging landscapes. The need for an overall increase in compassion and coexistence between people, nature, and the wild, and even in our urban and suburban landscapes, communities, and neighborhoods. Today, we're going to tread into the area in between. That gray area between the lovable and adored pet cat and the other side of that coin, the furball and the feral cat. My guests today are Dr. John Hadidian of the Humane Society of the United States and his colleague, Katie Lesnick, Director of Cat Protection and Policy. Welcome, John and Katie. Hi, Ellie. It's nice to have you here. So, um, John, you were previously a guest on this program and we were discussing urban wildlife conflict and resolution. And in speaking with you about that, you had told me you were on your way to Hawaii to do a feral cat presentation. And that triggered me because feral cats, it's a huge issue. It's a conservation issue. Um, We previously talked with Will Stolzenberg and Rat Island introduction issue. It's an emotional issue and it's a kind of a hair trigger issue. So why don't we start with some background? Let's, I think eventually we're going to have to de- define the terms, and let's just start with some background, and I think, John, you're the guy to start there. Okay, Ellie, thank you very much. It's great to be back and uh, to be discussing with you and your audience this really important conservation issue, also a very, very important animal protection issue, because when you get right down to it, and we'll come back to this repeatedly, Everybody involved in this issue wants the same endpoint. They want fewer cats outdoors, fewer cats suffering, fewer cats preying on uh, wild animals. And, you know, it's just a matter of how do we get there? And we hope in the time that we have, we can, you know, explore some of the options for that and talk about some of the differing philosophies and address some of the really complex uh, issues involved with the coordination of the various parties and stakeholders here toward the best end, which is, again, to have fewer cats outdoors. When we first talked about this issue, and I um, pointed out a few things that came immediately to my mind, 
you immediately started bringing up a whole lot of other points and mentioned your colleague Katie, and now I know why. And um, we started creating an outline that when I got into it, I realized just how huge, far-ranging the scope and far-reaching this is. And you just did a, a great little intro there. So let's get into the background of when did we first realize what is a feral cat versus a pet cat versus a barn cat? Let's work that in here somewhere. And where did this start? Well, it, it okay, it started, you know, with the domestication, quote-unquote, of these animals. Um, cats, as I think a lot of people know, were uh, a longtime companion of humans, second probably only to dogs. It, at least 10,000 years ago, people and cats were hanging out together in a, uh, if not a, a commensal, a symbiotic relationship. And we think that as soon as people began to practice agriculture and rodents began to compete with them for the products of that agriculture, that cats became welcomed in human communities. So well, while they weren't, they weren't the pets we think of as today, but they were around and tolerated because they performed very valuable services, probably essential services. For in some in, of in sense that they, what, removed rodents from... They, they ate the rodents that were after the grain, that were, um, you know, the early storage cap capabilities of people obviously left a lot of these facilities open to infiltration by rodents, and the cats were there to help relieve that. So I guess we could even start a little further back. There are the wild cats, of which the domestic cat is the ancestor of, and then, of course, all the hybridized and breeding that we've done of domestic cats today. So we do have the wild cat. So I guess we start there. The wild cat somehow realized it was a beneficial relationship to hang out with us humans. Yeah, so we have several species of wild cat distributed globally, but the one we want to focus on is a Felis libica, the, the cat of the Middle East, essentially, who, for whatever reason, has a personality and, and a greater tolerance uh, toward humans than most of the other types and who we think was the first true domesticated uh, cats, cat animal and um, we have evidence from archaeological sites of, of cats and people very very closely related, As a matter of fact interred in the same graves as early as 9,000 years ago from a site on Cyprus. Wow. And then everybody knows the story of the Egyptians and their, uh, their worshipping literally of these animals and their adoption of them into fully integrated into their society. Uh, they probably did at that time, you know, in the early early dynasty periods, come into human residences and be tolerated and accepted as pets as much as the service animals that would be on the periphery, pretty much on their own, but um, and unsupplemented, but performing those those valuable services. And even today, I'm just going to interject, I was, I'm having, I have cats, pet cats, and that's part of the reason why this is important to me, and we'll discuss, because I do let my cats outdoors, supervised, but, you know, that's part of what we're going to get into, is what happens when cats, pet cats go outdoors versus the feral cat. But I'm doing a little behavior modification with my cats in a great book called Starting from Scratch, and she says here, basically, that the relationship between people and cats is based on food. So, if, 
when you're working with a cat and you've got food and it's a highly motivated thing, even more than dogs, that that relationship is based on food. So that very much falls in line with what you had just said. They tolerate us and we accept their services. Yeah, Katie, do you want to comment on that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely some to that, but we also form, you know, emotional attachments with these animals and, you know, certainly they look to us for food as a source of shelter, a source of a source of companionship. Um, and what we like to focus on is just how much they give back to us, whether they're no longer fulfilling that role of the um, keeping the rodent population down, keeping our grain safe. Um, they're in our homes now, but they're still providing that um, emotional attachment, that you know sense of wonder or fun when you're watching them play or watching adorable kittens do their thing. Um, and so the cats have become so much more, and they're now the number one companion animal in the United States. Uh, there are between 70 and around 85 million in homes, um, and that has recently surpassed dogs even as the, um, as the number one companion animal in the United States, which is pretty amazing. That is. So your, your title here is, once again, uh, the Director of Cat Protection and Policy for the Humane Society of the United States. And John, you do a lot of urban wildlife conflict, which evidently includes this crossover area between the pet cat and the stray cat, the barn cat, and the feral cat. So let's back up one second, because this is, this is such a broad scope, and um, let's define some terms. So between you and Katie, let's, let's define when it stops being the pet cat to an outdoor cat, to the neighborhood stray, to the barn cat, to the feral cat. And obviously they live in different habitats. Right, and I'll take a, a, a very brief crack at that and then hand it off to Katie because she, um, you know, has uh, greater expertise with all of these different types of cats. I'll simply say that I, when we were preparing a white paper for a conference we held a couple of years ago uh, on cats, outdoor cats, in, in Los Angeles, looked into the literature and looked at the different terms that people were using to describe cats, wild, feral, you know, domestic, whatever. There, there were 30-plus terms just in publications and in reports and in information that was out there about cats that people had used to describe them in these various states and capacities. And, you know, that, I think that's one of the problems as we begin to discuss what to do about cats is that we don't even have our terminologies down yet. Mm -hmm. uh, although you have broadly outlined the major ones, the, the idea of barn cat, the idea of owned cat, indoors cat, and so on. So, Katie, what's your sense of all, all this terminology, terminological confusion? Yeah, exactly. There is a lot of confusion, and I think people tend to go into this this field or, or start thinking about cats in general based on what they have historically had as a relationship to cats. So if they grew up with indoor cats, you know, that's sort of how they think about all cats. You know, every cat should, should have a home indoors and every cat should behave this way. Every cat looks this way. Or, you know, if it's a farmer who mainly has had relationships with some barn cats doing some work for them, keeping their farm safe, keeping their food safe. 
or if it's someone who you know is a um, an avid birder who's out and sees predation happening and doesn't perhaps have a personal relationship with the cat, then they have a very different view of that cat population. So what John said is is totally true. There's um, very much a, con a confusing element as we try to delve into what sort of cats are we talking about. And so we tend to think of cats on a continuum. We have the indoor owned cats that have never been outside, you know, have the cat trees and shelves running around people's houses. They've got their cat super highway zooming around inside, you know, they're uh, happy, they're healthy, they get to the vet regularly. And then all, all the way on the other side of the continuum, you have the truly feral cat who does not come into contact with humans, you know, is not wanting to be in contact with humans at all, is totally living on its own wherewithal. Um, and so they're actually out there doing their own thing. And so then everywhere in between, you have these very fluid populations. And so you might have a cat that is an owned cat, um, perhaps goes indoor-outdoor, and then something happens, a family crisis occurs, or um, you know the cat gets lost, or the cat gets chased away by a dog, um, and then the person isn't able to find that cat, and so then that cat becomes a stray. Or you may have a deliberate, something like an abandonment issue, where the person no longer wants the cat, decides, hey, I'm gonna open the door, scoot, out you go, now that cat is a stray cat. Depending on how long that cat stays outside and what sort of situation it's living in, that cat could become you know, more feral and a little bit afraid of people and kind of more move to the more fringes of the neighborhood. Or it could stay in close conjunction with people and go to several different houses and you know, be fed by three or four different folks who all have a different name for the cat and all consider the cat to be theirs. Um, maybe they even let the cat come inside for a while, sleep on the bed, it goes back out. Um, and so, you know, my overall point, in the point is here is that these populations are extremely fluid. And so you might even have, some people have had success with sort of rehabilitating feral cats to make them a bit more social and they actually end up coming into the home um, and being owned cats. So you can have cats flowing in both directions on this continuum. And so really there lies the problem. Um, you might be dealing with an owned cat one day and a stray cat the next. Um, and then everybody has a stake in it. So the wildlife conservation has a stake in it and they're coming from one side. Shelters have a very clear stake in it since they're caring for a lot of these cats. And then the cat owners have a stake in this as well. And we're all sort of coming at it from a different angle. This, it, I'm, I'm mind boggled here because you, you put it very well, it's very fluid. The first cat I ever got was actually, I guess, a stray who he was fixed he had been neutered and I saw him around my house and I let him in and he'd come in and then he'd leave for 10 days and then he'd come back and I finally kept him with me and he became a fully integrated house cat uh, mm -hmm. he still would like to go outdoors and he was a very qualified predator um, so that's an issue we want to get into also so I guess my confusion here is okay in that kind of a situation how do do you, as cat policy and um, cat protection, how do you go about educating? We've got like two minutes here, so this is we're going to just sort of touch the tip of the iceberg. How do we? How do you, in terms of what you do, um, and and your job with Humane Society, deal with these various categories? How, how do you end up finally finding a category for it, or is there such a thing? I mean, it's got to be very complicated. 
Yeah, well, I guess we try to be as inclusive as possible. And the programs that we support and the projects that we work on and the sort of the best practices that we endorse, we try to make sure that they're going to touch the largest number of cats possible. So we would be advocating for policies that apply to both feral cats and stray cats. Um, whether it's TNR or, you know, working on an, uh, some sort of an adoption or foster program or whatever, you know, the organization in your area wants to do, we would encourage them to be as inclusive as possible because our overall end goal is to get cats spayed or neutered regardless of what type they are, in quotes there, in air quotes, um, regardless of what type they are, to get them spayed or neutered and to stop the reproduction. So we try to cast as wide a net as possible. So it's really important in this case to reach out to the farming and um, neighborhood community that's taking care of, and let's even, as you had mentioned, John, when we were talking before about this topic, the um, urban stray cat neighborhood and people who feed them, correct? Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, we'll want to talk about what we call community cats when we come back. Well, I think that's a perfect time to take a little break, so stick with us. This is Ellie Weiss, Our Wild World, and my guest today, Dr. John Hadidian. And is it Dr. Katie Lisnick? It is not. <laughs> it is not. Well, nonetheless, she's a pro, and she's the Director of Cat Protection and Policy for the Humane Society of the United States. We'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. 
What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back with my guests, John Hadidian and Katie Lisnick, and we're talking feral cats today. But as we've learned from the first sec- section of this today's program, that's um, a wide-ranging, huge scope of a talk- topic. What is a feral cat? When does it become a feral cat? When is it your neighborhood cat? And as we were just talking about, when it is the community cat. So, John, let's let's talk about a little bit more of just trying to understand the terms. And as you had said before, there are so many terms that are referred to cats or how cats are referred to as in so many terms, I guess would be the better way to put it, that we're trying to maybe um, level the playing field here and get cat terminology a little more understood. Right. And... and um I'll let Katie talk about our our thinking on this community cat concept, but before we go there, I would also mention that we often talk about outdoor cats because even the owned perfect pet who goes outside uh, is regarded by some as a potential threat to wild animals and wildlife species that we need to be concerned about protecting. So um, we have the outdoor cat who at large represents an issue with predation, and I know we'll get into that in quite a bit of detail. And then we have, from the animal or cat protection perspective, these community cats who often, you know, are are out there by themselves, striving to survive and, you know, really uh, an object of attention in regard to animal welfare and animal protection. So the community cat here is, let's call it, the neighborhood stray or the urban stray, the alley cat that, you know, the restaurateurs put their scraps out for or the neighborhoods put food out on their deck or their porch for. So that's a community cat. It, it, it knows everybody in the neighborhood and ev- everybody individually knows it. Yeah, I think that's that's really spot on. And the term community cat is, um, you know, trying to get at a couple things. One, it's trying to avoid this terminology of, oh, is it a feral cat? Oh, is it a stray? How social is it? 
regardless of the sociability of the cat, we want to get them spayed or neutered. We want to help them. And so we're looking at that overall population and we're calling them community cats. So we're, so we're including ferals that don't really want to be around people that are, you know, not too social. And then some pretty social stray cats that perhaps, you know, they get taken into a home. Perhaps they're just living their life in this, in the neighborhood. And again, as you said, a lot of times the, the community has some ownership of them. And I'm using, you know, air quotes around ownership there. There's buy-in, there's community uh, engagement with these cats. People know, oh yeah, there's a colony that lives behind, you know, behind the grocery store. Or, you know, there's, you know, that person, my neighbor two doors down, she feeds cats and I feed cats. And then we, you know, we feed these cats together and we all have names for them. We also find in a lot of our underserved communities, the Pets for Life communities, where our programs are uh, across the country, that there's a total, um, a, a very strong sense of community ownership of these cats. No one person claims that cat as their own. A whole community knows the cat, knows the cat by name. You know, he makes the rounds. He'll go visit this family on Monday. That you know, that family on Friday. Everybody knows the cats. Everybody has that community buy-in. And so the, we're trying to get at with this community cat term is one, it's a very large and fluid population. And two, those cats have a home where they are and we need to be dealing with them and taking care of them and managing them in their homes. Their homes, you mean being the neighborhood? Or? Being the neighborhood, being okay. the community, yep, where they're living. Okay. So this springs a lot of questions to mind and I'm not sure exactly which direction we should go. So we'd mentioned the odd neighborhood cat. I have one in my neighborhood. I live on a half mile long road and there is one cat. We don't know where it came from. So, and I know two people on the road that know of this cat. So I guess you could call that a community cat. It's being fed. It's not coming to my place. I don't see it, but I see it. Um, And then there is the colony of cats living in a neighborhood and then this immediately leads into that whole um, conversation of trap neuter spay versus euthanizing colonies so we have a lot to get into so john you and i talked a little bit let's maybe talk about this community um, colony of stray cats they're somewhat social they're being fed they're not quite wild feral and this trap, let's let's get into it, the trap, neuter, spay programs versus, and how they work. John, you had mentioned there has to be a certain percentage of trap, neuter, spay to make it worthwhile because the end result, I, I gather, is to have the colony die out because of the whole conservation predation area. So let's let's start touching on that a little, and I know it's going to open up into bigger windows, so to speak, but... Um, yeah, I, um, I'll start and then hand it off to Katie because this is, again, she has greater expertise in this. But what I know from my readings and from talking to people like her is that uh, often you will find groups of cats who are fed by people in a community who care to see them, you know, sustained and, and, and are interested in their welfare. Uh, a movement that started in Europe probably in the, I would say, 1960s, maybe even a little bit before then, uh, with these cats was uh, focused on taking those cats who otherwise, and there are many, many places in the world where these groups of cats in the temples in, in Asian countries or the Colosseum in Rome 
uh, are there but are not you know, managed at all other than to be fed and they produce kittens. Well, these folks that started this movement uh, in, in primarily in the UK said, let's take those cats and, and bring them in and, and surgically sterilize them. So males and females both were surgically sterilized and, and then put back out into their colonies. So there's a trap, neuter, return concept which is often modified, trap, vaccinate, neuter, return, and trap, neuter, return, and manage. And, you know, there's variations on this theme. But the, the concept is to, um, you know, not to trap and euthanize or kill those cats, but to leave them out there and to render them incapable of reproducing so that ultimately, ultimately they do gradually uh, decrease. The colony decreases in size until it it becomes extinct. Well, it, it just quickly brings to mind, you mentioned the um, cat colony in the Colosseum in Rome. It's, it's almost a tourist attraction. So let's say there's a community buy-in, and I think, Katie, this might be a question for you. What's sprung to my mind is when you do the work, you and John, because, John, you did a presentation in Hawaii, um, when you do the work and you talk to a community, um, where do you bring in the emotional aspect of this community wants these cats around. They've been around. You're helping them understand the consequences. John, you and your urban wildlife conflicts, and I'm sure the stray uh, cat colony, whatever we want to call it, the community cat, has an impact on that. So we're going to get into that. But how do you deal with the emotional huge aspect, the emotional aspect of a community to understand that the point of TNR, trap, neuter, return, is to eventually have the colony die out. It's an emotional issue. How do you deal with that? It is a very emotional issue, and wherever we're working, whether it's here in the United States, anywhere in the United States, or other countries, you know, the emotions are are there. They're simmering under the surface, or they're very blatantly out. <laughs> and they're either going to be, I love that cat, and I don't want to see him go, or I hate that cat, and I want him gone. Right? <laughs> yeah. there, there's certainly no lack of very strong emotions on this issue. What we try to do is to bring in a little bit of um, patience and some um, data and some science and we actually try to walk a fine line and navigate between the, those very emotional sides and it can be extremely difficult. As I can I, imagine. I mean when yeah, you're talking I mean, patients, cats and fine line, <laughs> right. I mean that you're walking an edge right there. Right, right. And as I said earlier, people are coming at this from, you know, a place that, you know, perhaps they had an experience with a cat at a young age or experience with wildlife they want to protect. Um, you know, these are really touching on very fundamental beliefs that people have about the wild world and how we should be treating companion animals. Um, and so you're really trying to navigate this whole plethora of different opinions. And what we really try to do is focus on the end goal the fact that we all want to see fewer cats that have no family, that have no, you know, no owner, um, that are out there reproducing, doing their own thing, kittens being born, kittens dying of, of illness and what have you. We want to see less of that. Whether you're coming at it from the bird protection angle, you're coming at it from the cat protection angle, all of us can agree to these end goals. And we just need to hash out what the best approaches are to get us there. 
The other thing that we can all also agree on, and we are constantly trying to, to make sure that people are, are thinking about this, is the cats are already there. There are cats on the landscape. There are cats in every single category that we've already touched upon. So nothing that we're doing right now is changing that. The cats are there. And so we, you know, we can take a little bit of time. We don't have to just rush right into it. The cats have been there for years and years. Um, we can take some time and we can discuss and we can figure out what the best practices are going to be and how we can be most effective um, to actually do trap, neuter, and return in ways that are going to help us reach those end goals. And we found that that sometimes will diffuse the situation, not always, um, but sometimes you can get everybody sort of moving in the same direction if you, if you come at it from a, a very low-key and reasonable approach. Well, okay, that was great. So that's given us a little idea of what your cat protection and policy is about and how you approach the community or the individual when there is a stray or a colony of cats around. So, John, let's go back a little bit to more what your specialty is, the urban-wildlife conflict. And I know typically that is wild animals in an urban situation, but I'd like to know more about what this cat presentation, feral cat presentation, that you did in Hawaii and how that works in to your bailiwick. Sure, but actually, Ellie, before we go there, I wanted to kind of follow um, on Katie's last remarks. She said a couple of things that we can complete our understanding of the history of involvement with cats. And since I think this other area that we're going to get into, predation and, and other things, uh, requires more extensive treatment, and we only have a few minutes till break. Okay, uh, excellent. So let me say this. A hundred years ago, there were publications coming from a gentleman named Elliot Howe Forbish, who was the Massachusetts state ornithologist, that were vilifying cats. And were, I mean, this guy is, is talking about the impact of cats, not only on, on the songbirds and other things we focus on today, but also on game birds, because at the time, there was a lot of quail and pheasant stocking and other birds brought in to, you know, be raised on lands where they could be available to be hunted at appropriate times of the year. So uh, Forbish was basically on, um, I would call it a kind of a rant, even though he was a very reasonable individual and realized that, you know, we couldn't eradicate cats from the landscape. Uh, that gives you an idea of the depth of the historical depth of the issue here in the United States. Because uh, you're also bringing up, let me just interject, when you say game birds, game, as we understand it in conservation and wildlife terms, is those animals or species that humans like to make use of for right. food or trophy or sport. Absolutely. Versus, yeah. Okay. So, so cats were having, cats were eating what we wanted. Yeah, exactly. Pheasants would be, a, you know, a perfect example. We've always... Pheasants are native to Asia, China, and we've always brought them here and stocked them in various places. Some, somehow they've gotten naturalized in, in various parts of the country, but mostly they have to be restocked every, every hunting season or prior to the hunting season. And, and cats would go after the pheasants and, you know, cats, if cats are even, the Egyptians used cats to hunt ducks. So they're pretty competent predators and they can take on big prey. And sometimes those prey are things that we are in competition with them for as prey of our own. I guess that's the best way to put it. So are you saying, one second, that the Egyptians use cats to hunt ducks for yeah. them? So like yeah. a hunting cat, like you have a hunting dog? 
Apparently so. Apparently they trained him to uh, perform that function. Wow. Talk about cat behavior modification. (laughs) Oh, boy. That never occurred to me. Okay. So we have about a minute left here. Where would we like to go for this, and then we'll head into a break? Well, let's talk very briefly about kitty litter. Kitty litter. Okay. Because until that product was, was perfected, which is sometime around the 1940s, People didn't really have an opportunity to bring cats indoors and keep them there. So we're looking at some very recent advances, canned cat food, kitty litter, that really sustain cats in indoor environments. So unlike dogs, which, you know, we have a totally different, you know, history and interaction with, cats mostly are thought to have really only been domesticated fairly recently. You know, I'm smiling because kitty litter never even occurred to me to come into this conversation and what you just said makes it so obvious that without kitty litter we would not have cats indoors and it has become a science in fact in in terms of creating the best kitty litter so um, I think on that note we're gonna slide off to a break so our listeners were my guests today are Dr. John Hadidian and uh, Katie Lisnick, and they're both with the Humane Society of the United States, and we're talking about cats. So stick with us. We'll be right back. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Join host James Robinson each week for a program designed to reveal more about yourself and your world through words of wisdom and profound guests. You'll discover more about the spiritual movement and how it can work with you and alert you to problems you may not be aware of. It will educate, titillate, and enlighten your mind. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on Earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now, we have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. 
this problem continues to get worse. The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from The Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, and you're listening to Our Wild World, and we're talking about cats and feral cats and the community cat and how we can look at solving the issue and all coming to a common goal, as Katie and John have told us, of reducing stray cat, feral cat, outdoor cat populations for a wide variety of reasons. So we left off before the break at kitty litter and how kitty litter really transformed the landscape for the indoor cat. So Katie, you have some, in in terms of being the Director of Cat Protection and Policy, you wanted to talk about um, how that leads to trends in what's happening with cats and indoor cats and how people view them and where they come from. Sure, yeah, so as John was mentioning, with the invention of kitty litter, and that's, this is a fairly, re- I mean, it is, it's a very recent trend in the overall terms of time, um, and so people started bringing their cats indoors, realizing that, hey, these cats are, you know, fun, and we can play, and we can have a wonderful relationship, um, and maybe I don't want to let my cat outside because I fear that something will eat the cat, or the cat will get a disease, um, or it'll get hit by a car, um, and so people wanted to bring their cats closer into their, you know, into their family proximity. And so what we've seen is the American Pet Products Association has been keeping some data. They've been some doing some surveys for a number of different years, and they do these about every other year. And they have shown, I think really within the past 10 to 15 years, which is a very short snapshot of time, that indoor ownership, indoor trends have really skyrocketed. So it was under 50% maybe about you know a decade or two ago. And now we're seeing numbers, you know, between 65 and 70% of cat owners are keeping their cats indoors either 100% of the time or certainly at night. Um, around 70% of people keep their cats indoors at night and still around 65% keep their cats indoors all the time. And that trend is increasing. Year over year when they do these data sets, they find that more and more people are keeping cats indoors. Um, and so, you know, there may be a whole number of different reasons for that. Again, as I mentioned, perhaps fearing for their cat safety outside. Perhaps there are some people motivated that they don't want their cats predating upon wildlife. And so they keep their cats in for that reason. And there's this whole new, I'm sure your listeners have seen, you know, all of this, uh, this you know, this explosion of fun and exciting cat stuff. for in Cat our- enrichment, catios, catification. There's, yes, catification book, the Jackson Galaxy show that's on Animal Planet. Um, You know, books about behavior, people talking about these things, you know, really stylish cat scratching posts and litter boxes that are appropriate for the cats but also look halfway decent in your home. And so all of this stuff, you know, that's created this whole new... Um, almost Market. consumer culture around cats and doors, which is, uh, you know, really an interesting trend. Um, 
And, you know, from where we're sitting, we're seeing that continue. And, you know, the Pet Products Association obviously is very interested in this for, you know, in terms of making money uh, and what they're able to sell to the cat owners. But um, certainly this is helping, you know, reduce the risk of the cats outdoors and the wild animals that share those, um, those wild communities. Um, and so another thing that I wanted to mention, and it, I, you got me thinking about this earlier when you said that you had taken in um, a number of years back a stray cat and it became, you know, your own cat. And that is something that is extremely common. That right now is the number one source of cats in our in our country, um, is people just taking strays in off the streets. About 40% of people that get cats get them that way. Um, and then it goes down from there. So, you know, somewhere just under 40%, maybe 38% are getting their cats from friends or family members who no longer want them or perhaps they had kittens and so they, you know, they take a kitten from a friend. And then the next one down coming in around 25% is adoption from shelters. And so shelters, you know, have this sort of a struggle. They're seen as a place for cats to go. And certainly they play a role in taking in stray cats um, and cats that need help, um, but they also struggle to get cats out, um, get, get cats out alive into homes. Um, I've noticed that. Uh, I mean, yeah. you, you see a lot of shelters advertising for cats, but you don't find many people, and usually it's an older cat. People love kittens, People love- um, and a cat is more difficult to socialize a lot of times when it's older. They're, they're sort of set in their ways, and John, this brings me to a point that you talked about people's perspective and views of cats so I definitely want to get into that so you just brought up a really important point Katie that cats are coming in cats are being being born we Mm. we continue to have a, a population of new cats coming into the world they're going into shelters they're not going out of shelters and um so lead into that so how do you deal with that that shelter side and that cat population yeah, you know, it's it's a we at HSUS we sort of view cats as sort of where they're living right now. So we think of owned cats and we think of community cats, and then we think of a shelter cat. So cats that are right now being housed in a shelter or a rescue or an animal control facility. Um, and each year there's between six and eight million dogs and cats that go into shelters across the country, um, and about three to four million, about half, don't leave alive. Um, And unfortunately, of that number, 70% are cats. Uh, So cats are certainly at high risk for euthanasia in shelters um, and rescues across the country and animal control facilities. So what we try to struggle with is we want to work with the shelters and rescues and animal care and control community to make sure they're providing, you know, appropriate care, enrichment, and make sure they know the best practices on how to get cats out the door alive through adoption, through barn cat programs, what have you. Um, But we also need to communicate to the average citizens and sometimes um, sort of the, you know, the opposition or the conservation side that perhaps just says, you know, every cat, we don't want to do TNR, but every cat should just go into the shelter. You know, shelters have very limited resources. Um, And if they don't have the resources, the time, the space, the energy, you know, the money, the staff, staff, Uh, just the cleaning time alone, you know, euthanasia is something that happens. And that is not uh, something that the community as a whole, our citizens want or will accept. And so So, it's it's a very real barrier. So when we hear about no-kill shelters, we're usually thinking about dogs. Usually, but the same concepts can apply to cats. 
um, a lot more cats are euthanized in shelters than dogs at this point. And so I think in the, over the past year or two, we've really seen uh, um, almost a, not a rebirth, but you know, this huge focus on cats in shelters. People are talking about cats, how we're caring for them in the shelters, what cats should even be coming to shelters. In our opinion, feral cats should not be coming to shelters because there's no way that shelters can help them. Shelters taking cats, they care for them, they get them out into adoptable homes, that's their goal. Feral cats don't fit into that role, and so we shouldn't be taking feral cats into the shelters, period. We need to find something else to help them and let the shelters focus on the adoptable cats that they can then take their time and energy and money and spend on something that's going to have a live outcome. So right here is a branch in the cat family tree, so to speak, in terms of policy and protection and what we're going to do with cats. Those that can be socialized, taken into the shelter, um, be adopted, or and then those that can't. So um, we're quickly running out of time. So I'm just going to ask you really quickly. This is we still have a lot to cover. Would you two be willing to come back and we could do a second episode on this, and we can run these back to back, and so that we can really flesh out both sides of this cat conversation. Oh, absolutely. Yes, sure. All right. Excellent. Excellent. I'm thrilled to hear that. So, Katie, um, what you had said brought me up to a um, one thing that I didn't hear you mention, and maybe this was included in cat control facility, the cat sanctuary, the crazy cat ladies that um, there's been shows on various um, TV documentary things about the people that took in 15 cats and now they have 300 cats and they've created acreages of a cat sanctuary and um, part of it is to adopt them out but part of their goal is to just keep the cats is how do you deal with that yes so sanctuaries do play a role Um, just the same as cats have a lot of different categories and we try to name them different ways the same as with the animal welfare community You'll have shelters of every shape, size, and form. You'll have rescues that have, you know, very different activities and, and goals and, um, and um, kind of structure. You'll have animal control, care and control facilities, and then you'll have sanctuaries. And, you know, they range from ones that are, you know, really intent on getting cats rehabilitated and out into homes or ones that are acting more of a, a retirement facility, essentially, that the cats can come in and that's their home until, you know, they die of old age or a medical c- condition that can't be treated. Um, and, and certainly sanctuaries can be done very, very well. There's one in Hawaii on the island of Lanai. And they, um, that's their approach. It's a small island. They don't have a lot of cats. And I'm sure John will talk further about this when we get into Hawaii. But, um, you know, a sanctuary is appropriate there. They have the funding. That's what people are supporting with their dollars and their time. And that's the approach they want to go. But we also, you know, we really try to deter people in that cat- sanctuaries are extremely expensive. Um, and they're not feasible to take care of all of the cats in the, you know, in the country that we want to deal with. So right now there's averages of around 30 to 40 million community cats. Um, there's Did not you just enough- say 30, 30 to 40 million? Yes. Okay. That is the current estimate, and the numbers range anywhere from 10 million to 90 million. But 30 to 40 million is where we come out when we look at kind of land use patterns and the number of, you know, um, we look at carrying capacity and all that. And that's just uh, in the United States. In the United States. And so when you're looking at numbers that large, 
shelters, rescues, and sanctuaries combined don't have the money, the time, the manpower to be able to hand to be able to handle all of those cats in the ways that you know some people would would call for adoption or sanctuary. Um, and so sanctuaries play a part and they can play a role, but they're not going to solve the problem for us. So this brings me, John, to you. We haven't heard from you for a little bit, and you had brought up a really interesting point when we were talking about doing this program, and that is people's perspective of about cats, that um, some people think they should be indoors, as for all the reasons Katie had mentioned, and those people who think cats cannot be indoors. Can you t- talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Um Attitudes towards cats are are stronger amongst people than attitudes towards dogs. I think where the studies have been done almost universally, very very you know high numbers of people have um, a great fondness and empathy for dogs. Fewer do for cats. There are people who just don't like cats at all, and and then there are people who of course love them. But um, these these attitudes with respect to cats really influence how we behave towards them. And the idea, the primary attitude that concerns me with people is that they think that cats can just do fine by themselves. And that if the cat wanders away or if the cat somehow doesn't fit into the household anymore, it's going to live a happy life outside and because it's almost a wild animal anyway. That leads to a lot of, I think, the issues with abandonment, which we should talk more about at some point. And the, you know, the, the general kind of open the door, let the cat out, and let it do its own thing. So, like we did with dogs, which we used to open the door and let them out to do their own thing back when I was growing up, and, and I won't say, but a couple of decades ago. Um, <laughs> we have to change our, our kind of perspective and say, no, we don't do that anymore because that cat's at risk when it's out there or that cat is going to put something else at risk that we don't want to see harmed. And uh, we're getting there. And Katie's data on indoor cats uh, clearly demonstrate that. And oh, and I have to add, my favorite for uh, enrichment for cats is the concept that kind of hybridizes the indoor-outdoor issue. And that's what people call catios. <laughs> yes. So they have these sometimes very elaborate uh, structures that allow the cats outside, but keep the cats from, you know, being able to wander or harm uh, any any other outside living animals, or be harmed, or be harmed. Mm-hmm. Our, our friends in in Portland at the Portland Audubon Society, they've teamed up with local cat advocacy groups, and they do a tour every year of the best catios in Portland, and it's amazing how many people want to come out get on a bus and drive around Portland to look at these different outdoor structures. Well, so, I, ha- I have to admit, I'm thinking of, you know, because of all these conversations and, and what you're making me think is, you know, my cats do like to be outdoors, and I'm thinking of building them an outdoor habitat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that's a great idea, and a lot of people are embracing it. And it is, again, another part of the solution. There are many, many parts to the solution, and every single one of them you know, alone isn't going to solve the problem, but together they're going to bring us to a critical mass that that is. So once again, we've got about a minute left here until um, we have to end this show, but you're going to come back. So once again, the reiterate the goal here is to reduce the amount of cats um, that are reproducing that have no homes. Would you say that's a fair assumption? 
Absolutely. And it's not just our goal in the animal protection community, but it's the protection, it's the conservation goal. Um, it's anybody who cares goal. I think it's society's goal. And, and sharing that endpoint, we can definitely get to a place where we're solving the problems. So what we've learned today from John and Katie is that there is a common goal, no matter which side of the cat line you're on, that the goal is to reduce the amount of unwanted, unhomed, and feral and stray and community cats that are out there in the landscape. So we have a variety of solutions, and so stick with us because we're going to continue this episode with John and Katie. So you're going to have to stay tuned for next week. And uh, in the meantime, today, we're out of time. So we're ending on the point that we have reached a common goal. Uh, We have understood some of the terms. So, um, John, Katie, I look forward to talking to you again. But today, we are out of time, and thank you. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you. So um, this is the end of episode one about cats, cats, cats. So stick with us. Join us next week. This is Our Wild World, and stay tuned. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 